Well, good morning to all of you who have uh, tuned in on SOCC.TV. I wish I could see your smiling faces this morning, um, but I'm so glad that we can at least connect this way and stay in touch with each other uh, through these uh, electronic technological kinds of means. We're returning to our series in Daniel this morning, and uh, I'm excited about it because I really think that the book of Daniel is appropriate for uh, these times. Um, so I'm going to start with a quiz this morning, real quick one. Who, cr who is credited with uh, creating this English idiom? If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Well, if you answered President Harry Truman, you are right. And that idiom certainly fits the theme of today's message. Daniel chapter 3 opens with these words. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set, up, set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Now, the Bible doesn't offer us a timeline for this event, but most historians think it happened very soon after the dream that Daniel had interpreted for the king. And it's interesting to me that in such a short time, Nebuchadnezzar has obviously forgotten the God that had revealed the dream to Daniel. According to Easton's Bible Dictionary, folks, the plain of Dura is a little bit southeast of Babylon, and it's a place that retains its name to today. On one of the many mounds that archaeologists have been working on, <clears throat> there has been discovered a great pedestal. And it's the kind of pedestal that could have supported a statue that is described here. So this may well be the place where the statue of gold stood. 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. And uh, most people think it's probably a, a, just an obelisk, very similar to the Washington Monument in D.C., uh, could have been an, an out-of-proportion statue of the king himself, but 90 feet, 9 feet wide, gold. I mean, that's no small statue. Uh, next time you're here in the worship center, take a look from floor to the ceiling at its highest peak is 39 feet. So this statue was more than twice the, the distance from floor to ceiling right here in this room. And given the fact that it was gold, it must have glistened all over that plain when the sun was shining. The text goes on in Daniel 3, <clears throat> then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you're commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. They say, well, what was the king's reason for doing this? I mean, after all, he was the king of the world because Babylon was the powerful uh, nation in the world at that time. Well, theories, you know, abound, but I, I think it was probably to try and find a point of unity. You got to remember that the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army had conquered so many different nations and uh, brought those captives into the country and into the city. And uh, all these different cultures and languages and peoples were bringing with them their customs and their religions. And so the king was looking for a point of unity. 
So if he could uh, create something where all the peoples would stop at the same time, bow at the same time, worship at the same time, it might begin to break down some of those barriers. And with every new group that was brought into the nation, it just added to the mix. But at at the moment when the music was to play, this could be a point where everybody could join in one simple uh, act, be of one heart, one mind, and of one worship. Now, as I mentioned, Babylon was a land of excessive idolatry. So every nation that comes into this idolatrous place would have no problem adding another idol to their worship agenda. However, if you believe that there was only one God and that that one God could not be represented by any kind of an image and that to bow down to any other image fashioned by human hands was to dishonor and to disavow your allegiance to that God who had created all of humanity by your hand, his hand, what would you do? You see, that's where these three Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, found themselves. And really, nobody else would have understood their dilemma. You can, you can hear people saying to them, oh, what's the problem, Shadrach? Uh, isn't the temple where you used to worship 900 miles away in Jerusalem? I mean, is your God going to know what you're doing here? Just bow. Nobody's going to notice. But those three men knew, and we know better as well. Remember what Paul said in his sermon in the city of Athens to this city full of idols. Acts chapter 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. If you worship to God as we do, who does not live in temples or is not represented by anything made with human hands, what are you going to do in a moment like this? Or better yet, how should we respond in moments like this? May I suggest that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded with clear direction that should be a model for our response in a culture that no longer embraces God or his word as a standard for behavior. And the lessons are so applicable in this time that we're going through right now. This own, our own global crisis, our, our own changing of life from day to day, there is really good lessons here that we can draw from in how these guys handled this situation. Here's the first one I want you to remember. Stand firm. Just like our response to the current crisis, there is no record of anything like this happening in Babylon ever before. I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were facing a life-threatening moment. To bow before the image was to deny God. Not to bow was an act of treason. And this was a very public, this was a red carpet, a black tie moment. Uh, It was the who's who of Babylon that was invited to the plains of Dura for this inaugural event. And the expectations were quite clear. The minute the music begins to play, you're to bow, to fall on your knees, to fall on your face and worship the presence of gold. And when the music began, everybody dropped to their knees 
except for these three Hebrew men who stood firm. Now, now before this moment all begins, in, in, your, in your mind, can you not hear Abednego trying to justify the moment? You know, guys, who, who will know? Who will care? I mean, if we, if we bow down, it wouldn't be real. There would be no faith involved. It, it would merely be physical exercise. I mean, after all, God knows our hearts. Let's not create a scene on this day of national importance. See how easy it is to justify things that we know we shouldn't do, but we don't want to avoid? It would only be an outward sign. It would not be an inward conviction. (laughs) I'm reminded of the little boy who was standing up toward the middle of the pew when his mom was sitting on the end. She, he was out of her reach and she motioned for him to sit down in the pew and he shook his head no and she motioned again, shook his head again. This time mom moved down the, uh, the pew, pulled her son down, pulled him close and held him down and he looked up at her in a glare and whispered, he said, I may be sitting down on the outside but I'm standing up on the inside. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have justified the same kind of moment by saying, I'm kneeling on the outside, Lord, but I'm standing up on the inside. But they knew better. And they knew that wasn't what God wanted. They knew that was not what true conviction is all about. Let me suggest to you something. This is why, this very reason is why we need to be vigilant in our spiritual convictions and in our study of God's word. By the way, the two go hand in hand. Uh, the convictions and the study have to support each other. You see, a casual knowledge of God's word is dangerous because it can lead us to weak resolve. And without biblical knowledge, we'll make a destructive decision. Without spiritual conviction, we'll make a compromising decision. Without biblical knowledge, we'll struggle to stay on the path that leads to life. But without spiritual conviction, we'll say things like, well, I know what the Bible says, But, so whenever we start to rationalize some questionable behavior, let's stop right there. Be honest with yourself, be honest with God before you proceed, and just maybe, just maybe, it will save you from a devastating decision. Do you ever get lost while you're driving? I mean, when you finally admit you're lost is not when you became lost. Technically, you became lost when you made the first wrong turn. Be ever so careful in life. Don't make that first wrong turn. Stay on the right road, the right path by putting the Lord and his word first in your life. I mean, folks, these are, these are strange times, unique times, odd times for us. I mean, Elvis isn't the only one who's left the building, folks. The church has left the building too. So let's Let's make this time an opportunity. Let's not squander some opportunity here that God has laid before us. Since our lives have slowed down a bit, this would be a great time to start reading more scripture. It'd be an awesome time to learn a little bit more by using such resources as Right Now Media or going through the Bible Project or taking any other reputable good biblical information and resources and studying that, all right? Use some of this new and unexpected discretionary time to increase your Bible knowledge. Don't waste the extra moments that you have. But the Bible knowledge is only the 
one half of the equation. The other half is, is conviction. What does the Bible tell us about standing firm? Well, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had this to say. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Second Timothy, Paul writing to his son in the faith, writes this. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, but, the, but those Hebrew guys back in Babylon, they didn't have the New Testament. No, you're right. They didn't have the New Testament, but they did have this. Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. First two of the Ten Commandments. So I encourage you today, stand your ground. Don't compromise what is eternally valuable simply to avoid temporary embarrassment, exclusion, or worse. Someday we'll stand before the God of the universe who spared no expense in purchasing our salvation. Do you think we will be able to justify to him that we turned our backs on our faith to avoid an uncomfortable moment in this world when he has given us so much? Stand firm. Stand firm. I don't know about you, but I really appreciate what Danielle had to say that, that you know, this is a time to be able to speak and to share a Christian faith. You look for ways that you can do it winsomely and you look for ways that you can stand firm out there. But you also look for ways, as we see in the text here, to be courageous. You know, these three men stood while everybody else bowed and there were those who were watching because they knew that's exactly what they would do. And they were the astrologers. Uh, who owed their lives to these men. Here's the irony of this whole thing. It wasn't but just a chapter before, a short time before, when these men's lives were on the line because the king was gonna kill all of his uh, wise men of Babylon because they couldn't tell him what the dream was that he had or interpret the dream. And if it had not been for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who interceded in prayer and that God gave them the message of the dream, all these men would have died. And yet they're still jealous because these three Hebrew men had been promoted uh, in the land of Babylon. So they're seeking for a way to take them down. Just remember, there will always be those who are seeking to take you down if you're not watching. And they had been watching during this time. You know, if everyone was to bow and worship the image, how did they notice that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't bowing? They weren't worshiping either. They were spying out so that they could make their plan work. You know, I've noticed that through the years that kids are a lot like that around the dinner table. I remember when our girls were, were little, they would oftentimes snitch on one of the others saying that they didn't have their eyes closed during the prayer. What I could never get them to realize was that if the other one was seeing them with their eyes open, they didn't have their eyes closed either. You know, kids are like that. Adults are like that too. Remember, this wasn't about devotion to the king. This wasn't about sincere worship. This was nothing but a trap for these three 
Hebrew men. And the king was furious when he found out. He called them into his presence. He spelled out the command again, gave them a second chance to make it right, and, uh, and they refused. This quickly became an international crisis. You see, if the king let the Jews get off the hook, then he'd have to let everybody else off the hook, and, and he'd have chaos in his hands, and this is no weak king. He'd look really weak in the process. So these men knew exactly what they were doing. Their response is gracious, but it is oh so courageous. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, they responded. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Now listen to this. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Courageous? Yes. They had to know what was coming next. This king would never back down. And knowing that, their response becomes even more inspirational. Now, I'd like to think I'd be so bold in responding, but honestly, I don't know. I don't think any of us would know how we would respond in a given situation until we have to face that. I think our prayers should always be, Lord, help us to be courageous in the tough moments of life. G.K. Chesterton wrote this. He said, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. Because of my uh, interest in aviation, one of my American heroes growing up as a kid was Eddie Rickenbacker. He said, courage is doing what you're afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you're scared. The last couple of weeks <clears throat> have been challenging to say the least. There is a wave of fear that is moving through our midst. You don't have to look far to be able to see it. I've, I've got to tell you, preaching to an empty room isn't my first choice of how the church should meet together. I suspect it's the best choice at this time. And as I've said before, we need to take every precaution to protect the vulnerable in our culture. But that said... We dare not let our fears overwhelm our faith or let worry replace our wisdom. Max Lucado wrote, the presence of anxiety is unavoidable. The prison of anxiety is optional. Our faith is best seen in the anxious moments of life when we respond with God-given courage. So can I ask, what are you doing to help others feel God's calm in the midst of this viral storm? Are you using your phone? I mean, our phones still work. They still connect easily. Have you made any calls to encourage anyone? Or email, or texted, or whatever social media forms you may use. It's a great time to stay in contact that way and encourage. It's also a great time to write an old-fashioned note. Nothing is quite so exciting as getting something in the mail. Keep a journal, write a blog, exercise, physically exercise to help with your anxiety so you in turn can help others deal with their own anxiety. Don't overdose on the news, all right? Take it in snippets. Don't let fear get the upper hand. Don't become cynical and negative. 
Snarky pessimism is a cold fog that obscures one's vision and impedes our forward movement. Be courageous in Christ. Now, unlike Daniel's three friends, most of us will not face death because of our faith. And yet, courage is still required of us. Mark Twain wrote, it's curious that physical courage should be so common in the world and moral courage so rare. That perhaps is the greatest challenge in our day, moral courage. I know nobody likes to be ridiculed or dismissed because he or she is out of step with culture. And as our society moves ever farther away from the time-tested moral values established by God, it will require even greater courage to live what may not be popular, but what is always right in the eyes of God. When your boss demands that you do something dishonest and you know that your job is on the line, depending how you answer, what path will you choose? When an attractive coworker suggests that the two of you spend some intimate time together that nobody has to know, how will you respond? When somebody brings gossip to you, will you participate or turn away? Our lives may not be on the line, but our character and our integrity certainly are. It is our moral and spiritual courage that counts. So let me ask you, is our moral and spiritual courage equal to that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? There are scores of people just like those Babylonian astrologers who are watching our every move. They're watching to see if we will live what we say we believe, if we'll walk the walk and talk the talk, if we will stand firm in our faith. So when we compromise, we have lost the battle and respect dies. Be courageous and stand firm in your convictions and faith. And here's the last thing I see, and that is endure faithfully. Nebuchadnezzar was so angry at this response that he had the furnaces heated seven times hotter than normal. Now, these furnaces were probably like brick kilns, which were found and have been found in that area in abundance. But these men were bound, they were taken to the entrance of the furnace, and the fire was so hot that the fire actually killed the soldiers who were taking Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be burned. They were thrown into the furnace at the king's command. Uh, folks, this is a king with anger issues. But then you need to look and see what happened. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 25, he, that's the king, said, look! I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, 
I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. How true. Now, what I treasure most about this part of the story is not that God intervened or that the king was convinced once again about the power of Almighty God or that they didn't even smell like smoke. All those are important. All those are great thoughts. But it's not my favorite part. My favorite part is when the king peered into the fire and he saw not three, but four walking in the flames. God was with them through it all. Here's what I want you to remember. We serve the same God. He is still with us. I know these are unnerving times, that nothing is as frightening or disconcerting as the unknown. Don't you know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had no clue as to what would happen? It was unknown for them as well, but they never lost their faith. I'm telling you, when you're walking through the fiery moments of life, you are not walking alone. Do not lose hope. Do not give up. Do not surrender in fear or panic. Endure faithfully. You are not alone. Stay the course and pray that God will continue to use us for his glory in these difficult moments so that he might be seen walking with us. I'm gonna close with this. During World War II, Chaplain Stuttered Kennedy was often in the front lines of the battle, ministering to the troops as the chaplain would. In France, they had a pause in the action, and he took time to write a letter to his 10-year-old son back home in America. I love what he wrote in the letter because it fits this theme so well. Here's just a portion of that letter to his son. The first prayer I want my son to learn to say for me is not keep daddy safe, God, but God make daddy brave. And if he has to do hard things, make him strong to do them. Son, life and death don't matter, but right and wrong do. I suppose you'd like to put in a bit about safety too, and mother would like that, I'm sure. Well, put it in afterwards for it really doesn't matter nearly as much as doing what is right. I don't think we can emphasize that too much. Serving God, being his ambassadors, living our life for him, standing firm, being courageous, enduring faithfully for our God, doing it his way is what will get us through the tough times of life. Even now, let our light shine for his glory. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we are grateful for the word. I'm grateful, Lord, that you've included this story in scripture, that these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, give us a lesson on what it means to hold Christian convictions, to stand firm against that which, well, would destroy our faith. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll help all of us in these times when things are sort of up in the air, the unknown surrounds us, the fears grip at our hearts, or whether it's in good times. Lord, in any circumstances, help us to stand firm, be courageous, and endure faithfully for you. We know Jesus did that for us. Let us live faithfully for him. In his name we pray.
Amen.